On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and sometimes trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have found the internet's finest podcast for music from a mail order. We have been doing something a little bit different lately. We've been doing what we're called Desert Island Recordings, which are albums that are made... Uh, either conceived of or written or recorded in some form of isolation. We're trying to put these out at a furious pace, or at least more furious than we usually put episodes out. And these are not to be confused with Desert Island Records, which would be the records you would choose if you were stranded on a desert island. These are certainly not that. These, These are kind of the opposite. If you're stranded on a desert island, these are records you should not take because it'll make you feel like you're even more alone than you are. So this is the third episode in this series. We did uh, Camper Van Beethoven's Kill Your Idols classic, Tusk. And then last time we did Bruce Springsteen's Heartland uh, Downer, Nebraska. And today we got something even weirder. But for these uh, short episodes, we skip trivia. So we're going to go straight into the turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Let's start with the cover. It's a living room, someone's living room for certain. A blurry Polaroid, slightly askew. A room with sea green paint with window trim and floor moldings in a faded fuchsia. The shade of the window is completely descended, eliminating any view to an outside world. To the left, a green fabric couch with a black ashtray on it, maybe a plate. The far right has just the peg leg of a chair or ottoman, seemingly less important to the scene that is being displayed. The centerpiece is a small wooden table with a large brandy glass style vase full of bright red carnations, or possibly geraniums. Two books rest on either side. One has a tan cover, and the other is a black Bible. A third book is propped up against the window, the jacket clearly visible and faintly recognizable, like the mass-produced paperback edition of one of Shakespeare's plays or the collective writings of René Descartes or something. Turns out it was the Penguin edition of Christopher Marlowe, a detective novel, I think. Everything is very clearly staged, but also very clearly real. Sometimes I end up looking at those clickbait sites that have lists of the creepiest photos in history. These are not outwardly graphic or scary, but unsettling within its own context. This album cover could fit in right with those pictures being taken by serial killers or the serene landscapes taken in the moments before mass cult suicide or the pictures of children's burlap sack Halloween costumes from the 1920s. It's an empty room after the residents have been unpleasantly removed. The album cover is haunting in what is absent and what is unseen. This is made especially so when the needle hits the vinyl contained within. back of the record was elegant in its simplicity. Bold black and white print. However, it offered little more revelatory information. The title of the record, Ready for the House, in straight letters across the top. Under it, the band's name, the units, though it's blatantly obvious this is the handiwork of a sole entity. The song titles, which are odd to say the least and certainly fail to give you any clue to the nature of the material with names like Naked in the Afternoon, First You Think Your Fortune's Lovely, 
What Can I Say, What Can I Sing, and European Jewel Incomplete. Finally, information about the label. 1978 Corewood Industries, P.O. Box 15375, Houston, Texas 77220. Mail order, single copies, $6. It is as if the back cover provided enough details to let you know that the record you held actually existed, but not enough information to prove that you weren't listening to someone who's gone off the grid or left the matrix. Surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, Texas has been a traditional hotbed for outsider music. From the zithering, celestophone gospel of Washington Phillips to the oil drum-beating street busker bongo man George Coleman to the western sci-fi glam psychobilly of the legendary stardust cowboy. Even more recognizable Texan weirdos like Rocky Erickson, Kinky Friedman, Daniel Johnston, and the Butthole Surfers are so left of center that it was only through supreme talent and drive that they could surpass their own eccentricities, mental illness, and sometimes dangerously flammable lifestyles. The fierce independence of the state, coupled with the extreme isolation of its population, results in bizarre echo chambers. Of all the musical misfits that have come from the Lone Star State, Jandek certainly is the most enigmatic and prolific. Jandek's first album, like most of his career, was made with aggressive alienation. Heralded as a master of American DIY, at no point during the first 25 years of his career did he seek attention, press, or notoriety outside his homemade music. No press kits, no live performances, no ambition or self-awareness. All interviews were summarily denied. Prolific in both his obscurity and output, Jandick would release 45 records, always 12-inch full albums, until CDs were available. Between 1978 and 2006, under the Corewood Industries label. These would all be sold only via mail order from the aforementioned P.O. Box. In the quarter century, there are only a handful of supposed interviews, which might be a misnomer because interview implies some transmission of pertinent information. He may have worked as a machinist. He may have had formal musical training. The unidentified man, who was Jandik, but only identified himself as a representative of Corwood Industries. If that Tom Waits song, What Is He Building In There, was nonfiction, it would have been about Jandik. There was one interview I read about where he refused to actually identify himself beyond what you had just mentioned, the representative, and he refused to talk about Jandek's music. You can hear a few interviews online, a few of the early ones. There's really only two or three, and we'll talk about some in a minute, but it's as if he wanted to be interviewed, but he didn't want to talk about anything that somebody would want to interview him about. It's strange. It's like he just wants to chat. He should have called Mingering Mike. (laughs) Most famous of these alleged contacts was Erwin Chusid. Notable outsider music persona on the acclaimed freeform New Jersey radio station WFMU. Given a copy of Ready for the House in 1980 by a co-worker, Chusid wrote a letter to Corwood Industries. He received a call back. Here is Chusid's account of the sparse information that he was able to glean from the contact. He rambled in a halting monotone. I asked questions he gave oblique answers. He wouldn't explain what he did for a living. He'd pressed 1,000 copies of Ready for the House and sold two. He'd recorded enough material for 10 albums and hoped to release them all. He'd written seven novels, but after they'd been rejected by New York publishers, he'd burned all the manuscripts. He had no friends, but didn't seem concerned. The conversation was disjointed. He had an etch-a-sketch mind. One jostling distraction and his thoughts were wiped clean. The next sentence a non-sequitur. Chusid stated that Jandik asked him for help finding record stores to carry his record. Jandik eventually sent him a box with 25 copies. He was clearly interested in people hearing his art. This wasn't a pretentious artist who was knowingly creating some horrific obscurity for making a statement about the state of the record industry or even the conditions of the world. However, the opposite is true, too. This is not the work of some deranged madman who had no control of his work. 
If the constant release of his music says anything, it is that Jandik is purposeful and driven, but also completely uninhibited by expectations or the allure of fame. Jandik makes blues music, but it is blues music that has died in the woods, had its corpse picked over by scavenger beast, leaving a mangled bone structure that gets buried under the dirt, only to be excavated and reconstructed by puzzled archaeologists centuries later. The basic forms they are just stripped. No melody, no chord patterns, no appreciable rhythm. But there are rules, just not any that we play by. As Chuse had put it, rock and roll? Jandik's neither rock nor roll. He's not even and. Despite all this, ready for the house, put me under a sort of sonic Stockholm syndrome. The more I play it, the more I understand, sympathize, and am drawn to it. It's freeing in its ethereal dissonance, like music that is from a different realm where music is not meant to elicit emotions like sadness, happiness, or love, but rather just warn you that you are in danger. A video game. It's a boss fight. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of understand that at this point in my life. I dare say that maybe I appreciate it. The album came out under the moniker The Units. There was already a San Francisco band with that name, so the representative of Corwood Industries would eventually make the decision to change the name to Jandek. Depending on who you believe, this decision was made because a cease and desist letter from the San Francisco New Wave synth punk band, or by the volition of the artist himself so that there wouldn't be confusion as if anyone could confuse his sound for that of any other artist. In 1985, the Jandek name was explained to musician John Truby of Blind Man's Penis fame. If you remember back to the song Poem episode. I got high last night on LSD. My mind was beautiful and I was free. Warts love my nipples because they are pink. Vomit on me, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. A blind man's penis is a wreck because he is blind. It's a wreck because he is blind. Who was interviewing the representative under false pretenses. Apparently, Jandek had a conversation with a man named Decker that occurred in the month of January. So it was a combination of January and Decker that forms Jandek. The album's catalog number of 0739 had no apparent numerological justification, but all subsequent releases continue from there. Ready for the House sounds like acoustic-only demos of Scott Walker's later experimental albums, sung by a teenager grounded for playing with household chemicals and starting a fire in his own basement. The guitar work on the majority of the album appears to be random picking of strings, on a single dissonant chord, made further unnerving by a strange open tuning, apparently of his own creation. I want to reiterate this point. One bad chord on a basically out-of-tune guitar for an entire record. It is as bold as it is unlistenable. It's basically the folk blues version of metal machine music that lasts an entire career. Here's a clip from the first song, Naked in the Afternoon, and the penultimate song, they told me I was a fool. I got a vision A teenage daughter Who's growing up naked in the afternoon I know a brother to a mother who stays out late in the evening time. You got real fancy instincts, but your mouth is so The 
words are fragmented pieces of stream-of-consciousness, nonsensical, troubling poetry risen from the dark recesses of an askew subconscious. The personal diatribes unleashed in a hushed whisper or warbled in and out of tune, or what might pass for a harmonic tune with the music. That is, until he unleashes a chilling, shrieking yelp. The lyrics are puzzle pieces that have no connecting synapse. They paint one one-thousandth of a picture and then are forced next to another. It fits the old trope that it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Take, for example, lyrics from They Told Me About You. Gangrene in two legs From like it could make sense, but it also sounds like gibberish made from the magnetic poetry tiles on Jeffrey Dahmer's fridge. A fridge he clearly visited a lot. <laughs> Midnight snack. Brain food. The only song from this debut that varies a little from the pattern is the final track, European Jewel, Incomplete, which has an electric guitar and seemingly a few different chords. Still absolutely discordant sounding. As the title suggests, the track just randomly cuts off. The jarring conclusion of a jarring album forces the listener to wonder what they just experienced and why, and possibly how they survived the experience. Don't worry, though, Jandek finishes the song on his fourth record, Chair Beside the Window, released in 1982. 1978's Ready for the House was the tip of the iceberg. Jandek started releasing records at a furious rate. Always based out of his Houston P.O. box, the records would follow a similar pattern. A grainy, weird picture on the cover, sometimes an eerie environmental still life, but often now a picture of a clammy scarecrow of a man with sunken eyes. The title's on the back, and Jandek's music remained Jandek's music. This isn't to say that he did not grow as an artist, he definitely did. Subsequent records make use of different instruments and, much later, an occasional collaborator. At times, he even approached mediocrity with his sound. Here's a few tunes showing his unusual progression. First, here's 1982's Nancy Sings, featuring a cosmically distant female vocalist, presumably named Nancy. The added Shags level drumming to this song, frighteningly titled, You Painted Your Teeth, somehow makes the song feel less complete. Breathe, baby, 
Then there's the more comparatively peaceful and reflective song, I Passed By the Building, from 1987's Blue Corpse. I passed by the building that you live in And I wanted to die The Cat That Walked from Shelbyville from 1988's You Walk Alone could double as a Velvet Underground demo. musical conventions would ebb and flow varying with each album and each song. Here is an almost standard sounding 1991 track called Upon the Grandeur. Some tracks remain just as freaky and possibly more difficult than the selections from his first record, like Worthless Recluse, which is the title track from his 31st record released in 2001. Let me know where I am, or show me the way to the woods, wearing deerskin shoes. And carrying a club, or walking naked. These tracks barely scratch the surface of the breadth of Jandek's music. There is progress, certainly, but non-linear. Slowly, the legend grew as massive boxes of records would arrive at the doorsteps of curious listeners and unsuspecting college radio stations. Acolytes would fall deep into the mystery. Jandek would eventually start getting notable artists like Sonic Youth, Smog's Bill Callahan, Mike Watt, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, Lowe, Bright Eyes, and K Records founder Calvin Johnson, embracing his influence and power on their music. He has been the subject of two documentaries and multiple tribute albums. And then something shocking happened. In 2004, 26 years after the release of Ready for the House, the representative of Corwood Industries played an unannounced live show at a Glasgow experimental music festival. A man dressed in all black and topped with a black fedora bopped around a stage with a bass player and a drummer. When he sang, there was little doubt that this was the Jandek figure from the album covers. Jandek is probably a guy named Sterling R. Smith, though this has never been confirmed. He now plays infrequent shows, often unannounced. He plays with a number of different musicians, and the sound of his shows varies greatly, sometimes verging on post-punk, synthy, goth, country, and even funk. Seriously. Oh, 
Most of his live shows are recorded and released by Corwood as CDs and DVDs. He now has almost a hundred albums out. Suck it, Robert Pollard. <laughs> you can still obtain them through mail order. His live performances and more public, however still guarded persona, took the edge off the mystique. In a way, it makes you wish the hermit would have stayed in the hills. But far be it for us to try and dictate how the man should navigate his career. Jandik, whoever he is, clearly knows what he is doing. Always has. Most records that we plan on discussing are created in circumstances or mindsets of isolation, but provide the listener something to grasp onto and something to which they can relate. Ready for the House does the opposite. The sheer amount of anti-musicality and distance isolate the listener. We have no artist to study, no familiar sound to fall back on, and no meaningful explanation to comfort us. Jandek is the epitome of solitary music. The album catches you at that single moment when solitary confinement has gone too long and you feel on the verge of letting madness take over and watching reality slip away. These are songs totalitarians play for people in the gulag. How many other albums of his have you listened to? All the way through? Yeah. Uh, two or three. I'm trying to remember which ones. I think the ones that came like in the mid-80s, I think, are the ones that I kind of liked. I think Chair Besides the Window, Blue Corpse was really good. Well, I say really good. <laughs> They're a little bit more put together than the, f- the first record. Yeah. Our friend Matthew kind of recommended, we were talking to him about what we were doing with the Desert Island recordings and the isolation, and he said, why don't you do Jandik? And I think it's something you and me have talked about before. I think we always wanted to know more, and that it seemed like his first album perfectly fit into this his whole career does really yeah definitely i remember listening to some albums or some parts of albums probably in the 90s but i don't remember what they were but since we started researching this one and listening to that first album i've also listened to now 1986's album telegraph melts 1988's on the way and 1990's somebody in the snow they're interesting some of them are okay. They have some songs that almost have hooks, but not really. I don't think they're they're meant to. It's not like something you can put on and have in the background like ambient music, even though there's similarities and that it's something that's really hard to focus on. It's both really hard to focus on and also impossible to ignore, um, <laughs> which makes it for interesting listening. I don't know. I... I really like this record. I don't think I would put it on very often. But it seems like the idea of Jandik is bigger than his music to a lot of people, and probably even to us, just by and how we did this installment of our series. He's such an interesting character. And 25 years going anonymous is pretty incredible. He's a J.D. Salinger of the music world, you know? I think a lot of people name drop Jandek in a way that makes them think that they sound cool or something, but I don't know how many people go through his full album. Some of them are very interesting to listen to and worth listening to, but again, like you said, I don't know if repeated listenings are really going to happen. The other thing I did in preparing for this, is I listened to some of the songs from the Tribute Records. And it's really interesting to hear people's take on his music. Like the Mountain Goat song. It's fascinating because John Darnell basically plays the music that Jandik is playing. Those bizarre chords. And it, se- it seems really difficult to replicate that music. But he does it in a very, like, honoring way. You know, it, and it's, I mean, he's really covering it very authentically and honestly. And so it's interesting. So I, I do think there is something to it. But at the same time, I think like what you were saying is that being name-checked more than actually listened to or experienced is probably true. Just for people out there, that was the Mountain Goat song was on the second tribute to Jandek, and it's called Down in a Mirror from 2005. And it also has Jeff Tweedy, Eric Gaffney from Sebado, Ockerville River also from Texas. Really great band, Mountain Goats. Oh, it's got a bunch of people. I mean, it's it's like 
It's a who's who of indie rock at that time. Dirty Projectors, Dan Melchior, there are 21 songs on it. The first tribute had Low on it, but really nobody else, I don't think. There's a lot of people who really like his music. But again, if this was a guy who put out the same music, but also put out press kits and played live shows and did interviews and tried to explain his music, do you think it would have the same appeal? No, not at all. He's only Jandek because he's been exactly Jandek. Like, I don't think anybody else could fit what he's done and be the same thing. Like, I, people wouldn't be drawn to it at all. It wouldn't be cool, I doubt. I think it would probably be pretty awful. And he wouldn't have even made more than one or two albums. Yeah. Him doing it on his own, doing the DIY, is what allowed him to be so prolific and allowed him to kind of grow that cult following. I don't think that's a manipulative thing on his part. I think that's just what he did because that's what he did, you know. Where were his records being pressed? I have no idea. I thought about that because he got pretty large runs, a thousand copies of that first record. Yeah. And we've talked about this with the private press. That's not cheap, but it must have been like a vanity press. It had to be. And how did he get so much money to do that? It was at least one record a year for a long time. And he would give lots of them away. Like he would send, he would pay for the postage to send it to radio, college radio stations. Or if somebody would buy one, he'd send a bunch so they'd tell their friends. And even now, um, his mail order is still up. You can, you can uh, get CDs. I don't think he has any vinyl, even though they've, they've repressed some of his records, but not through him. But he still has, if you buy 20 CDs, it's like half price or something. I mean, he's still is trying to get his music out there. I found a site where the person who was blogging about him seemed really knowledgeable, and he mentioned his job, but it still didn't sound like a job that you could come up with that kind of money consistently. That's ex- that's really expensive, though he might not have any other expenses. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe his parents left him an oil fortune. I mean, you can make up any sort of mystery you want about him because he hasn't filled in that gap for you, which is part of the fun, I guess. And he is getting out more. I mean, like, you can, there's plenty of YouTube videos of him playing. Like, almost every time he plays a show, he puts out a CD with it um, and a DVD. He's definitely out there spreading, spreading his gospel. Seems to play a lot more in Europe than he does in the States. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like, he doesn't go on a tour. He just plays a show here and there. You got to hand it to him for building that mystery upon himself and for never giving up. His music is worth knowing about, and it is worth diving into a little bit. It's really hard to find the songs that you might want to hear most. There's no way that anyone could create a best of and have it be accurate for any other person. Yes, that's true. That's true. Even the the songs that we played from later in his career, I think we're trying to be kind of representative. And there's some really, like that Nancy Sings song, which is it's not him singing, but that's a really pretty song. There's some He has some really great songs. He really does. There's another song on the album right after that, I think, where it's not Nancy singing, but it's Nancy's sister. And that's also a good song, too. It's not quite as nice as this, because her voice isn't as nice, but... There are songs that are palatable. When I check his website last, I don't think he's doing mail order right now with uh, everything that's going on. But um, he would, if you're interested, buy buy a CD from him. I mean, that would be a great way. Write him a letter. He'd be a fun pen pal. <laughs> I have to admit, at least a couple times as we are preparing this, I was kind of thinking like, Man, we're kind of like the Jandic music podcast. We just keep doing it and doing it and sending it out there. I'm not sure anybody's <laughs> listening. How Jandic sounds to us is how we sound to most people listening to podcasts. It's unbearable to listen to at times. <laughs> Anyways, this was a cool one, and I think it worked perfect for isolation. So thank you, Matthew, for the idea. Let's play some songs now. Great. The first song we have for you for this episode is a song by a band called The Barbarians, and it is called Multi. 
I remember the days when things were real bad for me. It was right after my accident, when I lost my hand. It seemed like I was all alone, with nobody to help me. You know, I almost gave up all my hopes and dreams. But then, then, then something inside me kept telling me, way down inside me, over and over again, to keep going on, yeah, on. better for me now because I found that I love music. So I learned to play the drums and got myself a band. And now we're starting to make it. And if you can make it at something you love, wow, you got it all. So I'm saying this to all of you. All of you who think you'll never make it. All you guys and girls because you're so bad off. Or maybe you think you're a little different or strange. So listen to me now because I've lived through it all. All day! there's just one thing that I need, not sympathy, and I don't want no pity, but a girl, a real girl, one that really loves me, and then I'll be the complete man. So I'm going to tell you, right now, listen! That was Multi by the Barbarians, which was released in 1966 on Lori Records, and that's the version that I have, the 45. It's also probably much more well-known for being on the Nuggets box set. The Barbarians formed in the early 60s, right around Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and they seemed like they were on their way to stardom, like they were doing really well. And They even appeared in this movie, which is this concert film called Tammy, T-A-M-I, which was Teenage Music International or something. Um, the acronym stood for a couple different things. But he appeared in that concert film alongside people like the Rolling Stones and James Brown, among others. And it's most known itself uh, because of the James Brown performance. It's incredible. Keith Richards has even come out and said that choosing to follow James Brown was the single worst decision <laughs> that the band had ever made in their career. But I think he probably said that before Steel Wheels. <laughs> the biggest draw to the band, the Barbarians, was Victor Multi Molten, who was, as you heard, a person who had lost his hand in 1959 while playing with a homemade pipe bomb. I don't know if there are non-homemade pipe bombs, but it always says homemade pipe bomb. <laughs> anyway, he learned to play drums after that debacle, and he played them with a hook, and it sort of looked like Captain Hook from Peter Pan. Wait a second. So he learned how to play drums after he blew his hand off with a pipe bomb? I believe he was playing drums, but I think he really became proficient after. Okay. Interesting. The song was written by... A fellow barbarian, he joined a little bit later, um, 65, I think. His name is Doug Morris, and the only reason I'm bringing that up is because he is now the CEO of Sony. For the studio recording, Multi was, I think, the only member of the barbarians there, and he's backed not by them, but by LaVon Helm and the Hawks, who were also at that same time supporting Bob Dylan. Multi, after the recording, was adamant that he didn't want the song to be released as a single at all it was just way too personal so doug morris wrote the song but he didn't write the monologue victor or multi just ad-libbed that and it it was just something he ended up not wanting released at all but laurie records did it anyway and the band was so mad that they left the label and signed to mercury 
and then they sort of stalled out, and they broke up in 67. Multi is actually mentioned by the Ramones in their song, Do You Remember Rock and Roll Radio, where it says, Will you remember Jerry Lee, John Lennon, T-Rex, and old Multi? Which is him, if you've ever heard that and didn't know. He's at least one of my top three single-handed drummers. He's got to be in the top three. Top five. <laughs> I think the message I got from all that is maybe don't play with homemade pipe bombs. Homemade pipe bombs? <laughs> Yeah. Or the, the alternative message is you can still be a rock star if you play with homemade pipe bombs. So I think it gave people hope because in the song, he conquered this. He did. <laughs> it's inspirational in its own way. Absolutely. He doesn't mention pipe bombs in the song, though, does he? No, he doesn't mention pipe bombs. He just mentions that he lost his hand. Seems like you're really kind of glazing over an important part of your story with that, but... That's just me. All right, for my song, it's a band with all their limbs, as far as I know. It's a scrawl, and the name of the song is Your Mother Wants to Know. All right, that was Scrawl with Your Mother Wants to Know. Uh, Scrawl was a band from Columbus, Ohio, and they were around from like the mid-80s to the early 90s, uh, kind of on the fringe of the Riot Girl stuff, but they tended to be a little bit more indie, a little less punky. Um, I don't know a ton about them, to be honest with you. I think, Joe, I think you played me this single a million years ago, and I've really liked it, and I've always liked it, and found it or was able to pick it up somewhere. And... They were kind of playing around, and then they eventually um, 
recorded an album about 1993 called Velvet Hammer, which was being engineered by Steve Albini. And this was the exact same time that he was doing stuff with Nirvana. So that kind of gave them a little uh, leg up where they eventually got signed to a, a major label and put out a couple more albums before they kind of moved on. Marcy Mays, who's the lead singer and guitar player and songwriter, she did some stuff with the Afghan Wigs and Greg Dooley. It's a really great song. I did listen to the Velvet Hammer album, which is kind of a sad record. It really is. And the reason I picked it, other than me just wanting to play it, was it's kind of a good reminder that you should call your family members and check in on them and see how they're doing. Yeah, that is a good song. Do you have other singles by them at all? Nothing. Do you? I do. I've got that one, and then I have one called Good Under Pressure from two years later. They, It's still on Simple Machines, so it's right before they went to Electra. It's nowhere near as good as your mother wants to know, but it's good. Good song. Yeah, I like them. I, I don't. Maybe you put it on a mixtape for me at some point. I don't know. I know you told me about them. Do you know anything else about the band? Like just incidentally, I don't know anything about them at all. They had a couple split singles with some other bands. That one was much bigger, Stereo Lab, and then they had a split single with a band called Versus, who was more of another another pop indie band that never quite got as big as maybe they should have, and then sort of disappeared. But they never really took off. Their sound kind of hits that sweet spot for me of that kind of early 90s sound, which I don't maybe seek out as much as I used to, but it was such an important time for me when I really started listening to music that I cared about. Yeah, I haven't listened to that song in maybe 15 years. I like it a lot. I'm glad you played it. Yeah. And uh, check on your people. Call your people. What else you got going on? If you're not trapped in the house with them already. (laughs) No, those people are good. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we want to say thank you to our podcast network, Pantheon Podcast. A bunch of great podcasts doing all sorts of fun stuff. Got lots of content out there. There's lots of different sorts of shows. So you can kind of go through the feed and kind of find what shows you might like. I listened to The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. They did a episode on uh, proto-punk which was was a lot of fun. They talk about a lot of great bands. So if that's like a subject where you don't really know uh, a lot about, you know, the Seeds or MC5 or the Sonics or, you know, bands like that, it was just a good overview, and I really enjoyed that. So, And the other thing is, please, please, please try to get out there and spend some money on um, musicians or record stores or buy some records. There's a lot of stores who are really in bad spots right now. I follow a few of them on social media, and I can just tell they're they're worried and concerned. And so if you have any spare money to throw around, I know a lot of us are worried about money. You know, Be mindful of how you spend it and try to spend it in the best way possible if you can spend uh, some money where you buy from an artist or buy from an independent record store or something like that. One of our favorite independent record stores and just favorite record labels in the whole world, Mississippi Records, they are not open, but they have put a lot of their stuff online. They have stock on Discogs, but they also have a site on Bandcamp where you can buy digital copies of their music. They have a lot of them up there where you name your own price, and the mixes are really good. They have some of the best best compilations of all time, so go there. Anything you can give them, they're going to really appreciate. They're awesome people, and it would be really important to keep them around. Yeah, we've. I would be heartbroken if they if they went down. They had an original Abner J up there that looks so good. Oh my gosh! Really important archivists of world music, especially on seventy eights mm-hmm. from all over the place, everywhere in the world that you can imagine. It's it is really important that that music be around. Yeah, we've played lots of songs that we would have never heard had it not been for Mississippi. Anyways, just just support people. They need it. Do what you can. We got any social media? We do. We are on Twitter and the Instagram. Our names on there, or handles if you like, is at Highway Hi-Fi Pod on both of those. And we have a Facebook page and an email. 
we have the email too. If you want to email us, our email address is highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. So let us know what you're up to while you're hopefully staying home as much as you possibly can. Yeah, please let us know. We need we need we need somebody to talk to. But the good news is with doing these kind of shorter episodes, we got some kind of cool stuff coming up. We'll, the next thing we're going to work on is another full-length uh, episode. We also have a really cool interview that we're going to try to get up relatively soon that you we think you'll all really enjoy. And then we're going to try to come back with some of these smaller episodes too. We got a few more albums that we might cover. If you have any ideas on records made in isolation, please email us, tweet us, Instagram us, do whatever. We'd we'd love to hear some more ideas, and they're they're fun to do. Uh, I think that's I've really enjoyed doing this this series. All right, stay safe out there, stay inside if you can, and uh, we'll see you next time. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money, would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.